Hey, good morning, Go Church. Hope you've had a lovely fall season. We've finally arrived at the month of November, which means that all I will be able to think about until like the 23rd is my mammo's roasted turkey, hot rolls and butter. And the nap I'll probably never get because I have a nine-month-old, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old. But my lost nap aside, this is a month about remembering to be thankful. And so I'd just like to start by saying I'm very thankful, again, to be able to preach the Word of God with you, the Bible, um, and get back into our series on sanctification that we just started a few weeks ago in Galatians uh, chapters 3 through 5. Now, it has been a while, but last time we covered part one called Understand Your Identity. And so uh, I want to do a little bit of review before we just dive right into part two today, because like I said, it's been a few weeks. So that said, as we studied the end of Galatians chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, we focused on the important truth of understanding who we are in Christ and who we were without him and how that has a very powerful impact on uh, our lives after salvation, who we are um, after we get saved, our sanctification. We also discussed how that's true in three main ways. First, we learn that God wants us to stop thinking like a prisoner, that those without Christ are still under the law and that those under the law are still prisoners to sin. As we studied the law's imprisoning power, we learned three mentalities of a prisoner that we should watch out for in our own thinking as believers. First, prisoners are, are uh, guilty because the law convicts us of sin. Second, prisoners don't have peace with God because the law cannot save us from sin. And third, prisoners give up because the law is unattainable. As we worked through each mentality, we talked about how to identify these in your own life as a Christian and how, you know, how and why you should avoid those. Next, we worked our way through the second point, uh, which was to remember your sonship. As we dug into Galatians 4, 4 through 6, we covered the three main areas of sonship, not sonship, not sonship, sonship, that can have a profound impact on your sanctification as a believer. First, we talked about the fact that sons are redeemed and bought back by God and love. We talked about what that means, what it means for our lives. Second, we learned that sons have peace with the Father and don't need to be frightened by condemnation. And third, we learned that sons are sealed and held onto by the Holy Spirit. As we unpacked each one of these subpoints from our text, we learned that these truths about your identity in Christ as a son can change the way you live. Then we moved on to the final point of part one of this series in Galatians 4-7, which was to live as an heir. As we dug into scripture, we unpacked three things that heirs inherit. First, Heirs inherit the family promises, that every believer gets to partake in the promises that God made to Israel. Second, we learned that heirs inherit the family land, and we talked about the difference between longing for heaven and idolizing the things of this world. And third, we learned that heirs inherit the family call to bless others, just like Abraham. And we learned how we can bless the world around us from anything from opening up our homes to the ultimate of sharing the gospel with other people and changing being a part of, of their eternal destiny changing. So in conclusion of this brief recap of part one of this series, we have learned from Galatians chapters 3 and 4 that, in, that the first real step to pursuing Christ after salvation and baptism is to understand your identity, which means you need to stop thinking like a prisoner, you need to remember your sonship, and you need to live as an heir. 
Today, we'll be covering part two of this series, which is to claim your freedom in Christ, and we'll be picking up where we left off in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, before we get into our text today, let's remember the context. As we covered last week, Paul was speaking to several churches throughout Galatia, Galatia here and, and that had been infiltrated by false teachers known as the, the Judaizers. And we learned that the Judaizers taught that in order to be saved, one must get circumcised, uh, and one, one must get circumcised, I think that's right, and one must follow the law of Moses, one must obey it in addition to being saved. Those are tacked on. Um, and so the, the entire book of Galatians is really just one big long treatise to that heresy, only it's a little more personal than that because it was Paul himself who basically um, more or less planted these churches. He got these churches started, so he knows these people. So when you picture Paul's attitude in the portion of Scripture that we're about to cover, we're about to read through, just think of a very loving but frustrated father. Paul was disappointed with the Galatians and how far they had been misled, no doubt about it. But he was flat out ticked off at the false teachers who were doing the misleading. That said, let's go ahead and jump into our passage for today, starting in chapter 5, verse 1, and ending in verse 15. Here's what it says. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. For you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Now, let me just pause here and explain that after this verse, and then really until verse 11, Paul moves away from his, his argument into a parenthetical thought um, that's really reserved for the Galatians and the Judaizers. It's almost as if Paul is kind of calling everybody to the side for a little huddle, a little team huddle here. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of explaining on this part, um, because honestly, it's about to get a little bit more confusing. So just stay with me. It continues in verse 7, saying, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? Okay, so this is really more of a rhetorical question that identifies the real issue at stake. I don't think Paul was actually asking them who did this, um, really asking for them to give an answer. He knows it's the Judaizers. But moving on to verse 8, it says, This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. So again, Paul is speaking to the spread of false teaching to the churches here with that leaven in the dough. In verse 10, he goes on, I myself am persuaded in the Lord, you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Okay, when I first read this verse, I understood it wrong. So it's very important that we understand it right about this part about accepting any other view. It's kind of confusing. Um, but what Paul is actually saying here is that he is confident that the Galatians will stay faithful to the true gospel and wind up rejecting the Judaizers in the end. This is surprising considering how far off they were, but nonetheless, Paul believed that they would return to the truth. I believe the reason he said that was because Paul believed in the power of the gospel. You see, Paul and Barnabas had preached the truth to many of the very people in these churches to whom he was writing. Paul watched them get saved. He watched the Holy Spirit come into their lives. 
He watched God work wonders. So Paul's confidence was really less in the Galatians and more in God. God's amazing power to keep his own children. That said, maybe you know someone in your life who you believe was saved but has since strayed um, from their walk in Christ. I'm here to tell you, don't, don't give up. Don't give up. There's always hope for those who have truly believed. The Galatians were pretty far off here, but Paul didn't give up on them because he believed in God's ability to keep his own children. So let that encourage you to do the same. Moving on in verse 11, Paul continued, Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So again, if we don't have the context for this, this really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us um, by what he's saying here. And essentially what had happened was there was a lie that spread about Paul that he was also preaching circumcision. The Judaizers were saying, well, hey, Paul's also preaching this. So we're, we're not saying anything different. So that's what Paul's responding to here. He's like, hey, I am, I am not preaching circumcision. And this is kind of a, a logical argument as to why he's not. He's like, I'm still persecuted for preaching the cross. So I wouldn't be persecuted if I was just preaching circumcision. So that's what's meant by that verse there. But uh, moving on, he says, in that case, the events, the, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. <laughs> so uh, just for a fun fact, the last word in your verse, um, your translation may differ in what word is used there, but basically Paul was saying that he wished the false teachers would castrate themselves, okay? I can't make this stuff up. It's in, is that in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. That is in the Bible. <laughs> he, he was frustrated, as I said. Paul was upset, and he considered the false teaching to be a threat to the, the, church, the churches that he loved. However, after this comment, Paul moved away from his little parenthetical heart-to-heart -heart with the Galatians, and in verse 13, he transitions actually back into his original argument about freedom in Christ. So let's pick up in verse 13. He continues. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. <coughs> now, I know there's a lot in this passage, but really what it all boils down to is freedom in Christ. With the exception of a parenthetical pause in the middle, Paul actually told the Galatians how they could claim their freedom, and in so doing, God has used Paul uh, as an author of divinely uh, inspired scripture to communicate the same truth to us here today. So with that said, we can claim our freedom in Christ when we reject legalism, remember relationship, and resist license. Again, Galatians 5, 1 through 15, teaches us that we can claim our freedom in Christ when we reject legalism when we remember, son, uh, remember relationship, and when we resist license. So let's begin by taking a look back at the first verse of our passage today, where Paul lays out the first way we can claim our freedom in Christ, which is to reject legalism. Paul writes, For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So as we begin to unpack this, we need to work through some key questions. Number one, for what kind of freedom has Christ set us free? And number two, what is the yoke of slavery that we are called not to submit to? 
And right away, one thing that's pretty noticeable when you're reading this verse is that submitting to the yoke of slavery is the, really the opposite of claiming your freedom in Christ. And so if we can answer the second question, then we've already answered the first one. In other words, if we can define what the yoke of slavery is, then we can determine what Christ has set us free from. Now, we know from the rest of Galatians that the yoke of slavery is to live under the law. Remember from part one, to live under the law is to be uh, to live under the burden and expectation of keeping God's law entirely to perfection. It's a lifelong struggle of trying to be good enough to please God. So in other words, the thing that Christ has set us free from is basically legalism. Now, frankly, I believe the concept of legalism is largely misunderstood in the church today. So first, let me explain what legalism is not before we talk about what it is. Legalism is not a word reserved for that Christian you know who seems to try harder than most people to live by what the Bible says. Legalism is not refusing to cuss or drink or do things that everybody else is doing. What that is is pursuing holiness, which is actually called for in the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, which says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy as I am holy. Honestly, I think people would be calling Peter a legalist today if he tweeted that. And, and that's because I think we've really gotten confused by this word. And so really, I, I want to make it abundantly clear this morning that doing your best to, know, to, to honor and to live out what the word of God says is absolutely not legalism. But just let me, let me take it a, a step further. Gently calling out sin in another Christian brother or sister's life is also not legalism. Rather, that's something we're supposed to do in the church. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So to put it all in a nutshell, doing your best uh, to live by God's standards and helping other Christians live by what the Bible says is, is not legalism. It's biblical. So the question is, if legalism isn't that, then what is it? Well, according to the context of our passage today, legalism is the belief that the cross is not enough for salvation and that works of some kind must be added to grace. Really, it's a lot like uh, Chick-fil-A's new honey pepper pimento chicken sandwich. Now, do I use way too many Chick-fil-A illustrations in my sermons? Yes. Am I going to stop? Probably not. <laughs> but stay with me. Something unnecessary has been added to something else that was already perfect. <laughs> the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I mean, I don't care who you are. It doesn't get any better than a buttered bun, a hot chicken filet, and three perfectly placed pickles. <laughs> if you know, you know. Now, when you take something so perfect and you begin to add to it, what you're actually doing is you're taking away from it. It's like, it's like adding negative numbers to a positive one. In the end, it's subtraction. In the same way, legalism adds works to grace. And in so doing, it actually takes away from the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It makes his grace insufficient. It nullifies the very reason that Jesus came in the first place. So with that understanding, let's continue on to verses 2 through 4 from our passage, starting in verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. 
Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You'll fall in from grace. These words communicate one main idea, and that one main idea is this. Legalism, or as Paul puts it, to live under the yoke of slavery to the law is mutually exclusive from the grace that Christ offers us on the cross. The two are entirely separate systems. To live by one is to reject the other. To, re- to subject yourself to one is to make the other obsolete. You cannot both believe in the complete sufficiency of Christ's grace while simultaneously tacking on works to it as if grace were not enough. That's a contradiction. With that said, we should be careful not to throw out works altogether in our thinking because works do have a place in the life of a believer. Let's look up on screen for a moment and think about it like an equation. Should be an equation. There we go. Okay, so the first line there, the first equation is works plus faith plus grace. And it should say, there should be a slash to the equal sign. It should say does not equal salvation. But the cancel sign is pretty good. Okay, and then it says below that faith plus grace equals salvation plus works. So it's not that works isn't a part of the equation. It's just that it's absolutely critical that we understand what side of the equation works is on. If we place works on the wrong side, we're preaching a false gospel of legalism that can't save. But if we place works on the right side of the equation, we're preaching the gospel of grace while still communicating that authentic repentant faith in Jesus will produce works in the end. That said, Paul's point here is more to do than to just define legalism. His point is to tell the church to reject it. So, are you rejecting it? Listen, it's, it's easy to say all the right words, but when it comes to living this out, it may not be as easy as we think. Legalism can have a very subtle way of appearing in our own lives. I guarantee that everyone in this room has at least one hot-button moral issue that can, you can be very passionate about. Let's just admit it right now that there are certain sins that disgust us more than others. Maybe repulsed by the entire transgender issue or the woke agenda. Maybe you're silent most of the time, but when abortion is brought up, there's just a fire in your soul that's just got to come out. (laughs) Or maybe you have alcoholics in your family and you absolutely hate alcohol and drunkenness. Whatever it might be, I guarantee that all of us in this room have at least one nuclear red moral hot button. And frankly, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that in and of itself because we don't err in being disgusted or repulsed by sin. As the holy children of God, that should be our attitude toward evil. But we err as Christians when we begin to say in our hearts that the lost must get rid of a particular sin before they turn to Jesus for salvation. And probably none of us would ever come right out and say it like that, but the reality is that sometimes we feel it. Sometimes we think to ourselves, that person is just too far gone. Other times we're so repulsed by the sin that we see in the world that there's this part of us that really does not want God to save them. Kind of like Nineveh and Jonah. (laughs) But church, that's legalism. And we need to reject it. If it had not been for the grace and forgiveness of the cross, where would you be today? What lies would you have fallen for? What kind of life would you be living? How quickly we forget 
that our own moral convictions only exist because Jesus opened our eyes to the depravity of sin in the first place in the light of his glorious grace. If you want to claim your freedom in Christ, you're going to have to reject legalism. But that's not the only step you'll need to take. You'll also need to remember relationship. Let's get back into our text, starting in verse 5 this time. Paul writes, For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Now, what I want you to notice right away is that Paul is making a contrast. There's a reason he mentions the spirit, faith, hope, and love. And that's because all of these words are descriptive of a believer's relationship with God after salvation. Faith, hope, love, the spirit. Meanwhile, in in verse 6, Paul uses the word circumcision, which in context functionally represents legalism, being under the law, trying to be good enough to please God. Therefore, the contrast in these two verses is between our relationship with Christ and how that motivates us versus trying to prove ourselves with good works and how that motivates us. Essentially, Paul is explaining in these two verses that what motivates us as Christians to live righteously and follow God's standards is not legalism, but a relationship with Christ. All this reminds me of what God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26. Let's read it. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is talking about the moment of salvation, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to change you from the inside out. Notice the order here, too. God gives us a new heart, and he gives us the Holy Spirit, and then... That causes us to follow his statutes and carefully observe his ordinances. In other words, the intimate relationship we now have with Christ through the Holy Spirit is what motivates us to live righteously. This is what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 6, what matters is faith working through love. You see, love is the catalyst that makes faith produce good works. Here's another way to say it. Faith goes to work because of love. It is the love that Christ showed us as broken sinners on the cross, and it is the love that we give back to him as we give him our lives. This is the new covenant. This is the heart of flesh. This is the relationship we need to remember. Given that, what has your motivation been lately? Is it faith working through love when you worship? Or is it more like obligation working through the fear of embarrassment? Is it faith working through love when you serve others? Or is it more like you're simply checking off all the right boxes? Listen, if you're in a rut of going through the motions this morning, then first of all, I want you to know that I have definitely been there a time or two in my life before. But second of all, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You need to stop doing and start being. Stop doing the same old things during your quiet time every day. Stop saying yes to everyone. Stop trying to give out of emptiness. I'm telling you that you need to hit the brakes and stop whatever it is you're doing that isn't truly flowing out of a relationship with Christ. Look, you can't keep doing the same things and expect everything to change. Jesus said these words in John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. 
Listen, the reality is that if you aren't living out your life out of a relationship with Christ, out of faith, working through love, then you aren't remaining in Jesus. And you need to address the problem at its source. How do you do that? Well, as I said, first, you're going to want to stop what you're doing. (laughs) And second, you're going to need to learn how to depend on God again and lean on his grace as you do so. You're going to have to stop spinning your wheels trying to do yourself, do for yourself what only God can do. He is the vine. You are just a branch. Ask Jesus to fill you, to give you what you need to remind you of his love and in so doing to refresh your faith. Only he can do that. The more you try to get that yourself, the more you won't, the drier your walk will be. You have to wait for him to give it to you. The only adequate motivation for living like Jesus is knowing him in the first place. If you want to claim your freedom in Christ, you're going to need to reject legalism You're going to need to remember relationship. And finally, you're going to need to resist license. When I say license, I am not talking about the thing in your wallet that lets you drive. And I'm also not talking about your modern firearm elk tag, okay? I'm talking about a license to sin. Let's go ahead and read the last portion of our text for today, starting in verse 13 of chapter 5. Paul writes, For you were called to be free, Brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite, devour one another, watch out, for you will be consumed by one another. Church, it has been my experience in this life that for every perfectly balanced truth, there are also two equal and opposite untrue extremes. Is God a God of wrath or a God of love? Do people have free will or is God sovereign? Is fried chicken the best after church Sunday meal or is it homemade biscuits and gravy? The questions assume two equal and opposite untrue extremes, while the truth is found somewhere in the middle of both sides. After all, who doesn't love fried chicken with gravy? Now, when it comes to our freedom in Christ, this passage excellently articulates both the balanced truth and the two equal and opposite extremes. At first, Paul addresses the extreme of legalism and argues that we cannot add works to grace because we are free from slavery to the law. Then Paul reveals the balanced truth right in the middle of this section, that that faith working through love in a relationship with Christ does produce works in the end. And now here in the end of the passage, Paul deals with the other extreme by explaining that our freedom in Christ is not a license to do whatever we want. (laughs) That's what he means in verse 13 with the phrase opportunity for the flesh. What he's talking about is sin. What we need to realize this morning is that the grace of the cross is not a get out of hell free card that enables us to sin. Instead, it should be our motivation not to sin. To abuse the grace of Christ is not a thing to be taken lightly. Hebrews 10.29 puts it this way. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Those are serious words. 
Listen, using grace as a license to sin makes about as much sense as using a presidential pardon from prison to commit high treason. It's crazy. But back to our text, Paul doesn't just say that license is bad. He leaves us with an alternative in verse 13. It says, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but serve one another through love. Then in verse 14, he builds on that by saying the whole law is fulfilled in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. So if we break this down and we chew on it, here's the bottom line. We are freed from living under the law in Christ so that (laughs) grace and love can motivate us to do what winds up fulfilling the law. In other words, we are freed from the law to sin. I'm sorry, we are freed from the law to love, not to sin. (laughs) Correct that. We're freed from the law to love, not to sin, which is actually, yeah, take a little snippet of that post on the end. (laughs) That's actually exactly the opposite of legalism. The freedom to love is the opposite of legalism. I'm sorry, the opposite of license. So you can either pursue the freedom to love or you can pursue the freedom to sin. The thing about it is you can't do both. You can either do one or the other. If you're using your freedom to love, then there's simply nowhere for sin to grow because sin is fed from self-centeredness. Conversely, if you're using your freedom to sin, then you won't practice love by serving others because you'll be too focused on yourself. With that understanding, let me just ask you, what kind of freedom have you been enjoying lately? Do you justify in your own life everything because it's already been paid for on the cross? Do you justify sin because it's already been paid for? I'm not talking about after the fuck. I'm talking about the excuses we make before we sin. I mean, have you ever found yourself thinking something like this? You know, I think I'll just go ahead and watch that really bad movie because everybody else is, and, and God will understand. He'll have grace on me, you know. He died on the cross for me, so I'll, I'll be okay. Or I can't help myself from throwing things or destroying stuff in anger. Um, surely God will understand and let me off the hook because I was angry. Or how about my spouse hasn't been meeting my needs lately, so I'll just take a quick look at what's online, what's on the Internet. Surely God will have grace on me my situation. Church, this is what I'm talking about when I say license. And that is exactly what the the, the Apostle Paul meant in verses 13 through 15 of this passage. We cannot distort the freedom that God has given us into an excuse for evil. But maybe you're stuck in the middle of a terrible habit of using grace as a license to sin. And you want to stop, but you're not really sure how. And if that's the case, hear me say that the answer is not to return to legalism. And that's what you're going to want to do because you're going to want to make it up to God by doing all and saying all the right things to overcome that guilt. But that really is just going to make things worse. The only true cure for license in your life as a believer is to remember relationship, to remember the cross and the nature of the grace that we've already been given and accepting it once more. If you're truly in touch with the price that has been paid for your forgiveness, then you will not see the the, the cross as something to use, but as something to die for. Honestly, all this reminds me of my own children. Um, Right now we have young kids, uh, and, and the law has to be laid out pretty consistently, pretty firmly, with rewards, consequences for their actions. I mean, when it comes to my five-year-old son, we actually work through a chart 
on his, on his behavior on a daily basis. But it's my hope that as they grow, they will become more and more motivated by the love we share and the knowledge that I want what's best for them, that it will be less about following the rules because they have to and more about following the rules because they want to. And I think every parent probably wants that for their child. But what you don't want for your child is to start misbehaving the second you stop keeping track. <laughs> the second that they take grace and use it to disobey. When it comes to our own kids, it's very easy to see why that would be wrong. And so my question is, why don't we see it that way when it comes to our relationship with God as his children? Listen, the moment that Christ died for you on the cross was the moment in which God the Father took away your behavior chart. He removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, the greatest act of sacrificial love ever made. So in that moment, there was no more making sure you had to do the right sacrifice at the right time with the right animal because the Lamb of God took on the sin of the whole world once and for all. The temple veil was torn in two, which means we gained access to an entirely different level of fellowship and love with God. He took our hearts of stone and he gave us a heart of flesh. He wrote, our, he wrote his law on our hearts, as Jeremiah 31, 33 says. And so listen, my point is, he didn't do all of that so that we would feel the freedom to sin more. He did all of that so that we would literally be recreated for good works. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. When my kids go off to college, the fear of dad's discipline isn't going to matter anymore. What's going to matter is their own convictions against sin, their own motivation to do what's right. And just like you and me, the only way that they can really have that is from a loving relationship with Christ Church, when it comes to our freedom in Christ, it's not legalism. It's not license. It is a relationship. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But understanding the nature of that freedom is very important. But what if you find yourself here today and you're not a believer? Maybe you, you never really made Jesus your Savior. Listen, if you're looking for something more than this world has to offer, if you're tired of hearing all the same things, this is it. You're here for a reason. Let me just tell you the truth. The gospel is not a message about saving yourself. It's not a message about trying to be good enough to get into heaven. The gospel is God's story. It's about what he can do to change you from the inside out. It's about how he takes the brokenness inside of you and he makes you whole. The gospel is about God rescuing you from yourself. Hear me say that if you think it, you have it all together, if you think there's nothing more to this life, your ears aren't going to accept this message because the gospel is for the broken. The gospel is for people who know they can't make it on their own, that there's something that needs fixing inside of them. It's for those who know they need a Savior. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ served the sentence for your sin on the cross so that you could be forgiven by God, made right with him and remade from the inside out. It's about dead people coming to life. It's about blind people seeing. It's about deaf people hearing. The gospel is about going, people who are going to, he to hell 
going to heaven. Listen, it's not something you just sort of believe in, just in case. It's something that becomes the sole reason for your existence. If you believe that God is calling you to make a decision today to change your eternal destiny, if you believe he's speaking to you, then I want to give you a moment. I want to ask you to pray something like what I'm about to pray in your own heart. Just repeat after me in your own prayer to God. Lord, I'm not exactly sure all the reasons I'm here today, but I sense that there is a very important reason I am. Lord, I believe, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing this moment to believe what I've heard about you, that you did save me from my sin, that you did die on the cross, that you paid the punishment that I was supposed to pay. Lord Jesus, I'm giving my life to you in this moment. And I'm asking you to change me from the inside out. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking for my eternal destiny to be changed from hell to heaven. Lord, I'm committing to you. I believe that you died from the cross. I believe that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And this is the moment I'm giving you my life. And for the rest of us in this room, God, um, those, those of us that know you, I pray that we would, we would apply what we've learned from your word today. Lord, that we would. We would reject license creeping up in our, our hearts, that uh, we would resist legalism, um, that we would remember our relationship with you um, as we are sanctified in you, um, living for you. And amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.